Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline, Mass Exodus. After abruptly announcing that White House Budget Director and OMB Chief Mick Mulvaney will now take on a temporary third job as acting White House Chief of Staff just yesterday, today the president, again abruptly, announced the departure of White House Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. Trump tweeted, Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke will be leaving the administration at the end of the year. After having served for a period of almost two years, Ryan has accomplished much during his tenure, and I want to thank him for his service to our nation. The Trump administration will be announcing the new Secretary of the Interior next week. Now, by his own admission, Zinke's departure is a result of looming investigations for ethical violations while in Trump's cabinet. In a statement released today, Zinke said in part, After 30 years of public service, I cannot justify spending thousands of dollars defending myself and my family against false allegations. Zinke's resignation comes just weeks before House Democrats are set to gain control of the House Committee on Natural Resources in charge of oversight of the interior. Not an ideal situation for a cabinet secretary who's been the subject of at least 15 investigations during his tenure. Here's the deal. This is what they call in Hollywood foreshadowing. Zinke may have used taxpayer dollars to fund expensive charter flights all around the country, but he ain't dumb. He can see the writing on the wall. Democrats are coming for all the ethics violations. And he's not the only one they're coming for. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, HUD Secretary Ben Carson, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, all of them have already faced varying degrees of scrutiny and could be looking at ethics probes in the new Congress. This after ethics violations have already seen the departures of HHS Secretary Tom Price, VA Secretary David Shulkin, and EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. Trump's White House isn't just a revolving door, it's political ipecac. You might go in smoothly, but you'll come right back out, violently and reeking. Now, before I break all of this breaking news down with my political panel, I want to go to Boris Sanchez. He's at the White House for more on all of these latest developments. Hey there, Essie. Boris, what yeah. do we know? Yeah, the White House had been closely watching these developments with uh, Ryan Zinke. There are reports out there that he was asked to leave the administration. CNN still working to confirm that. Obviously, okay. as you pointed out, with an incoming Democratic majority headed to uh, the House, there were, uh, there is a potential uh, for Zinke to have to testify in regard to some of his business dealings. Uh, to give you a, an idea of what that may look like, though Zinke has left the administration, there are some still calling for him to testify. Uh, last month, he had an exchange uh, with Representative Raul Grijalva of Arizona. He leads the Department of Natural Resources, who oversees the Interior Department. He called on Zinke to resign over these allegations. Zinke, in return, called him a drunk. And today, a spokesperson for Grijalva put out a statement saying, quote, It is safe to say that our oversight of former Secretary Zinke has not even begun yet. We will extend the invitation to testify and still take it from there. So it appears that Democrats are licking their chops, hoping to get him to still uh, testify. Obviously, you can imagine why the White House would want to put some distance between themselves and Zinke, considering there have been other administration officials uh, like Tom Price and others who have had uh, questionable ethical behavior that has led to very negative coverage, something the president certainly is not a fan of, I see. Mm. So the heat, not quite off Ryan Zinke yet. All right, thanks, Boris. I appreciate it. 
Uh, there's a lot to get through here, so let me bring in CNN political commentators, Republican strategist Doug High, Democratic strategist Hillary Rosen. Uh, what a day of news. Doug, I'll start with you. Mm -hmm. You have a little background mm -hmm. on Zinke's departure. Yeah. What do you know? Well, it, this has come out of nowhere, at least the announcement. It's a Saturday, which means this is all the focus of the media. It also means that the staff was caught by surprise. They were not expecting this to come first thing Saturday morning. His staff. There still has been no yeah. official communication with the secretary to the staff. Uh, there'll be a meeting Monday with, with the political staff. So they're still flying in the unknown world right now of what exactly is, has caused this to happen now. And there are a lot of questions. It also means mm. that the news stories are being filled with staffers who are making things up as they go along because they've been left in the dark. Huh. Um, that's not a good spot no. for anyone to be in. <laughs> Do you think other cabinet members, Doug, are looking at what's happening with Zinke and considering doing the same? Like, I, I, I should bounce before the heat really gets to me. They are. And this is, uh, to some extent, a you can't fire me because I quit moment, <laughs> although it's clear that this decision was made by the White House. We're hearing more and more. Um, but also, it's not just other cabinet members. There are senior staff at the Interior Department. This would be a big problem for the Trump administration if David Bernhardt, the number two at Interior, who's really done a lot of the, the heavy lifting on policy, isn't elevated to uh, the next secretary, who has some good relationships with congressional Democrats, um, especially for a Trump administration staffer, mm -hmm. that some of those staff may leave as well out of loyalty to David. Um, Hillary, do you think other cabinet members are watching and thinking, the Democrats are coming, the Democrats are coming, and so I you might want to exit? You have to step back and yeah. look at kind of the hubris of the Trump administration officials two years ago when... Um, the, the Republicans controlled all branches of government and decided that they could run amok and do whatever they wanted to. That's been sort of the, the trigger here that has led to us, us to this moment. Yeah. And I think that people are kind of, they, they didn't seem over. to anticipate that the party would be over, <laughs> right. that they would be scrutiny. And I think that um, you have Democratic members now at every, on every issue with every cabinet level, with every cabinet saying, I, I want... I want to look at this. I've right. been ignored for two years. Now I've got my chance. Well, so I'm reminded of something that Rahm Emanuel told David Axelrod in an interview a couple weeks ago on CNN. He said Democrats should leave Trump to Mueller and yep. they should focus on all the ethics violations. Do you think that Democrats are taking that advice? I mean, I think they're going to walk and chew gum at the same they're time. They're going to do it all. I, you know, I think we've already heard that... Um, uh, Adam Schiff at, at Intelligence uh -huh. and, and Ways and Means is going to look at taxes. Uh, you know, Donald mm -hmm. Trump is going to have his share of problems and subpoenas and document oh, requests yes. as well. Um, but I do think that some of the areas that Democrats are going to look at, and Zinke's uh, critical here, it isn't really just that he used government resources mm -hmm. to fly to a party in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. It's that he unleashed more federal lands into the private sector mm. than any secretary of the interior did in the last 30 years. But so that's and political. So, Are you saying there's a political motivation no, I'm saying for it's Democrats policy. as well? It's substance. And mm. so what you're finding is... It, the EPA rules that have been lessened that people are unhappy about, the um, access to, um, you know, housing subsidies, mm -hmm. all of those things. Democrats really are going to say, you know, you've you've raped and pillaged the government mm. and hurt people. Mm. And we're going to get to the bottom of well, it. Well, they'll still need Trump on on that sort of stuff. But, uh, Doug, Mick Mulvaney, we know <laughs> to go back to the chief job now. He once called the president a terrible human being. <laughs> uh, we happen to have sound. Take a listen. Yes, I'm supporting Donald Trump. I'm doing so as enthusiastically as I can, given the fact that I think he's a terrible human being. Uh, but the choice on the other side is just as bad. 
I mean, he went from reluctantly <laughs> supporting a terrible human being to now becoming the president's chief of staff. Yeah. There's no one closer, maybe other than the vice president, mm -hmm. to the president. Uh, what do you make of this? That was then. This is now. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to politics in Donald Trump's right, Washington. And right. so it shouldn't be a surprise, especially because Mick Mulvaney has been a loyal soldier um, for the president. You know, he's had about 18 different jobs, it seems, yeah. different hats, um, all a red one um, while he's been working for Trump. And so this is, again, also, though, another move that will help Trump with congressional Republicans and, and to help unify him. You they think? know Mick Mulvaney. They like Mick Mulvaney. And that's a positive step forward for the administration, in regardless of what was said previously. He, he definitely needed a politician. Yeah, right. right, right. He, right. He, they, there's no question that that John Kelly was not the chief of staff for going into a reelect mm -hmm. yeah. and dealing with the problems that he's about to have with yeah. Mueller. So he needed a politician. Mm -hmm. And guess what? There just weren't that many options. Right. And Mick Mulvaney is there. Pick me. Pick Still me. Aren't. Yeah. Um, Hillary, Ron Klain, a friend of yours and mine um, and a veteran of the Clinton and, and Obama administrations, tweeted something rather ominous, but also interesting uh, earlier. He tweeted, by installing a Senate-confirmed official as chief of staff who is not quitting as OMB chief, Trump blunders into being the first president to have a chief of staff who can be called to testify before Congress. Was this a gift to Democrats? Well, look, I think really it's uh, open game, you know, and if he doesn't leave the OMB job, which I'm sure now he's going to he have will. to because yeah. mm -hmm. there's not going to be, you know, they'll have an acting head of OMB yeah. Um, which they can do for, mm -hmm. year, you know, a year mm -hmm. without a problem. So there's no way he's going to keep that job. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so interesting. Um, this is a job remarkably that, as you mentioned, only Mick Mulvaney um, seemed to want. But we believe, according to some reporting, that he insisted on the acting part because he didn't want this for a long time. What do you make of that, Doug? Well, I think we've learned one thing. A lot of jobs in the Trump administration are very temporary. Mm -hmm. And so if you define yourself as acting... Either by default well, or design. <laughs> well, then you just weren't promoted. You weren't fired at the end of the day. Right, right. But it also, go, you know, it's instructive but that Trump agreed to that because that's exactly what Nick Ayers wanted. And as Trump we recall, didn't want... Two weeks ago, right. the vice president's current chief of staff wanted a temporary yeah. position and, and the president didn't. But he ran out of options pretty quickly. He ran out of options and, uh, yeah, the field sort of whittled itself down. Uh, this is what he's left with. Hillary Doug, thanks so much for joining me. There's a lot of stuff to cover. I appreciate it. Uh, up next, more connecting the dots in the ever-expanding investigations into Trump world. And a bit later, is Joe Biden the man for the job? That's what Democrats seem to think for now. The walls are closing in. It seems every day now a new facet of President Trump's life, both personal and public, is being scrutinized for legal, ethical, even criminal wrongdoing, the breadth of which is really unseen in modern political history. And it's not just the Mueller probe that the president has to contend with. Trump has proven a target-rich environment for multiple agencies and offices on multiple fronts. In addition to the special counsel's office, the president faces investigations from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York and the New York, New Jersey, and Maryland Attorney General's offices. And come January, you can add the United States Congress to that list as well. There are so many investigations happening simultaneously, in fact, that things sort of turn into white noise. But it's important to remember this is not normal. Things are not okay. The president of the United States is in serious trouble. So let's break it down. Trump is facing legal jeopardy on at least 
four distinct fronts. First, there's campaign finance violations. The president's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, made some news this week. He has admitted to criminal violations of federal campaign finance law when he paid off two of President Trump's mistresses. He alleges, and prosecutors believe him, that those payments were made at the direction of then-candidate Trump in order to influence the election. He said as much in an interview with George Stephanopoulos this week. So this essentially makes the president an unindicted co-conspirator in two federal crimes. Okay, second, we have potential obstruction of justice. In question are the president's apparent efforts to impede investigations against him and his close associates. His firing of James Comey, tweets and other statements, dangling pardons to potential witnesses, his attacks on witnesses who have flipped like Michael Cohen, and his praise for those who have remained silent like Roger Stone. His replacement of Attorney General Jeff Sessions with a more sympathetic Matthew Whitaker. It seems at every step Trump was using the office of the president to tip the scales of justice in his favor. That's being looked at, too. Next, we have the investigation into Russian collusion and interference into the 2016 presidential election, the thing that started all of this. Most recently, investigators have been digging into whether or not Trump allies, Roger Stone, Jerry Corsi, were involved in coordinating with WikiLeaks, long believed to be a Russian cutout, to release damaging emails from the Democratic National Committee and allies of Hillary Clinton. This would also include efforts to gain dirt on Hillary Clinton during the now infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting. Okay, finally, we have investigations into Trump's financial entanglements with foreign entities and governments. Perhaps most notable are questions about the Trump organization's efforts to build a Trump Tower in Moscow for which he'd need approval from the Russian government. Michael Cohen has admitted to lying to Congress about the timeline of those dealings. In addition, there are questions about foreign governments buying blocks of rooms at Trump properties, potentially falling afoul the Constitution's emolument clause. We have new investigations into Trump's inauguration spending now, which could involve crimes like bribery, tax fraud, and misuse of nonprofit status. It goes on and on. That's not even an inclusive list. So taken together, this all represents really an avalanche of legal jeopardy for the president and the people around him. Okay, to get all of these threads together, uh, I want to bring in former assistant um, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig, and former supervisory special agent with the FBI, CNN law enforcement uh, analyst Josh Campbell, two great people for a very big, complicated, 30,000-foot view of all the things that are going on in Trump's universe. Ellie, I'll start with you. The legal battles Trump is facing are so numerous and oftentimes interconnected, it's hard to keep them all straight. From where you sit as a former U.S. attorney, which of these buckets of legal problems do you think poses the greatest threat to the president? I think the Southern District investigation poses the most immediate, okay. potentially criminal threat. I think Mueller's investigation, the Russian collusion piece, poses the larger political sort of existential threat. To okay. The president. So what I mean by that is, if you told me as a prosecutor, you have to go into a grand jury tomorrow, 
armed only with what's publicly known and walk out of there with an indictment, I yeah. would choose the campaign finance violation. Okay. I think there's the most developed factual record. You have Cohen's testimony. You have Pecker and Wesselberg who've been immunized. You have AMI, which flipped in last yeah. week. You have the tape between Cohen and Trump. So Potentially a vault at the National Enquirer full yes, of Trump stuff. I want to see what's yeah. in that safe. Um, you have that. That said, I think there's a separate political question as to, well, there's certainly a question as to whether DOJ can and will indict the president. Mm-hmm. But there's also a political question as to whether, even if that case is proven and conclusively, is that going to move the needle enough? Mm-hmm. Is that going to move the needle enough for, for Democrats to impeach, for Republicans to move off of him? And I think it's going to take hmm. a hit on one of the either the, the entanglements with Russia uh, or the hacking to really get that done. Well, so Rudy Giuliani, though, one of Trump's many lawyers, um, has said of the campaign finance violations, uh, so what? No one no one died. Yeah. Is, a, is a judge likely to agree? Yeah, so what is a terrible legal defense. <laughs> it doesn't. They don't teach that in law school. Mm-hmm. Um no, look, a crime is a crime. A campaign finance crimes are serious. So John Edwards was put through a trial for one. Yeah. He wasn't convicted. Right. But these, these are crimes that are charged and people get convicted. Now, he's the president, so special yeah. rules do apply to some extent. But, yeah, no, I, I don't think... Uh, I don't think any judge or juror will be would at all care about a who cares defense. Okay, Josh, over to you. Uh, yesterday, Robert Mueller slammed Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor, for suggesting the FBI tricked him into lying about his contact with Russians. Mueller wrote, in part, the defendant, that's Flynn, chose to make false statements about his communications with the Russian ambassador weeks before the FBI interview when he lied about that topic to the media, the incoming vice president, and other members of the presidential transition team. When faced with the FBI's question on January 24th during an interview that was voluntary and cordial, the defendant repeated the same false statements. The court should reject the defendant's attempt to minimize the seriousness of those false statements to the FBI. And then here's the final blow. A sitting national security advisor, former head of an intelligence agency, retired lieutenant general and 33-year veteran of the armed forces, knows he should not lie to federal agents. Uh, That is scathing. What did you make of that, Josh? Very scathing. And it was a dramatic development. I mean, reading through that document, it kind of reminded me of, you remember the movie A Few Good Men, where Jack Nicholson playing Colonel Jessup, you know, (laughs) at the end, he, in that great scene, he launches into this smug monologue, you know, telling all these ingrates that they can't handle the truth. That's what I was kind of expecting Flynn to do, to say, look, all this service to the nation, how dare you? He actually went the opposite and said, not only can you not handle the truth, I didn't even know I was supposed to tell the truth. And of course, Robert (laughs) Mueller looked at that and said, well, that's a garbage argument and systematically picked that apart. In yeah. this document, I think, I, you know, I tell you, knowing uh, Bob Mueller used to working for him, he's a very impatient person. And I think when he sees someone like Michael Flynn trying to have it both ways, on one hand, saying, I'm cooperating, I'm providing information, and then also taking a page from President Trump's playbook and saying, well, I'm also a target of law enforcement and the FBI. That's not something that, that sat very well with the special counsel. So we saw through that document mm-hmm. him really picking apart this argument and saying, look, you should have known better. A 33-year right. veteran of the United States military. This is nonsense. Did you uh, did you order the code red? You're damn yeah, right, exactly. I did. Um, right. Okay, Josh. What about what about these um, financial entanglements, the emoluments? Um, we now know that Trump's ties to Saudi interests, for for example, um, are being investigated on multiple fronts, not just by Mueller, but also House Democrats plan to investigate that specifically. 
Yeah, it is so swampy, I see. And, you know, for as much as the president likes to attack FBI agents, gosh, is he giving them job security? Because you look at all of these different lines of effort that they now possibly have to, you know, look into the president and prosecutors and other regulators. I mean, it really just shows this cascade of, you know, potential corruption. And one thing mm. that really struck me today, our friends over at The Washington Post, in one of their articles, they had this really dramatic lead in one of their stories. And it said, two years after Donald Trump won the presidency, nearly every organization he led is now under investigation, which if you think about that, you know, we, we talked about it earlier, the administration, the inauguration, uh, the foundation. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So that, that obviously yeah. poses legal challenges for the president. I think the last thing I would say on that is that there are obviously all political challenges. I talked to a yeah. lot of my friends who are Republicans who run in Republican circles. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is this argument out there that people say, well, they know what they got when they signed up for the president. They know, you know, his, his uh, demeanor. They knew his bluster and all of that. A lot of them really didn't know that it got this swampy when it came to a lot of these allegations. And I think it's yeah. posing challenges potentially if you're looking at it from a political lens because yeah. the quote-unquote party of law enforcement now has someone at the top of the ticket who is now facing so much scrutiny from law enforcement. It's a really troubling time. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about the political implications of all of this um, in the next segment. Ellie, back to you. The ultimate prize here, for Democrats anyway, would be proof that somehow Trump colluded uh, with Russia before the 2016 election. How does that look? Uh, that is to be determined. I yeah. think that's the next chapter, the next phase that we're going to see. And, you know, this week was so taken with the people who've already been charged uh, and with the, with the campaign finance. But let's yeah. not lose sight. There's two big fronts, I think, in the collusion okay. battle. One of them is WikiLeaks, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's remember, the, we know for sure the Russian state hacked into Hillary Clinton's email servers, the yeah. DNC email servers, and it looks awfully like there was coordination between Roger Stone, Jerome Corsi, okay. some combination of these weird guys circulating around <laughs> Stone. I don't right? know what they're you all, mean. They're all characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that comes to fruition, if there's a connection back into the inner circle, and we know that uh, that Stone was talking to Steve Bannon, yeah. that's going to be a heavy hit. Okay. The second piece is the financial entanglements and the Moscow project. And, and what was so important, what, what jumped out to me there is it answered the why question, right? Trump is trying to build a hundreds of millions of dollars worth of development yeah. in Moscow. Yeah. Um, he needs Russian government approvals to do that, and he's doing it way into the election. Mm-hmm. Once he's even into the summer of 16, when he's already the presumptive nominee, mm-hmm. and he's, Michael Cohen lied about it. Mm-hmm. And so Michael, it, it explains why did the Russians want Trump to win? Right, right, right. right. He would have been indebted to them mm-hmm. financially and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Why, uh, why did they offer this election assistance? Why were mm-hmm. Trump's people so eager yeah. to, to get it? And why was everyone lying about it? Uh, Josh, Ellie, thanks so much for this analysis. Appreciate it. Uh, next, a look at how this Mueller mess could reshape Trump's political playing field. And coming up, a judge strikes down Obamacare. But the president and his supporters may not want to rejoice just yet. This week, a stalwart of American conservatism closed up shop. The Weekly Standard is shuttering after 23 years. The announcement was made by its owner, Clarity Media Group, yesterday. Co-founded by Bill Kristol, the magazine became hugely influential, especially during the George W. Bush years. But in the Trump era, it was an outlier, the rare conservative publication that was consistently and deeply critical of the president. So not surprisingly, today, Trump fired off a tweet reveling in the magazine's demise. The pathetic and dishonest weekly standard run by failed prognosticator Bill Kristol, who, like many others, never had a clue, is flat broke and out of business. Too bad. May it rest in peace. For those of us who grew up reading the pages of the weekly standard, we will remember it differently. 
as a voice of intellectual honesty, courage, and real conservatism. It's no wonder the president wasn't a fan. We'll be back in two minutes. In the red file tonight, we broke down all the legal battles the president is fending off, and they're coming from all directions to be sure. But what about Trump's political problems? Those are just getting started. For more, I'm joined by CNN political commentator Kevin Madden. Um, so, Kevin, we talked earlier in the show about the White House turmoil with Democrats likely aiming their fire at other cabinet members. But for Trump himself, with all these legal battles, how are Democrats likely to seize on the scandals, the investigations? Well, just on the pure politics, if they were smart, they would get out of the way uh, and just allow these uh, investigations <laughs> right. to go on. Um, uh, you know, my, my old boss, John Boehner, used to say, if your opponent's about to jump off a bridge, whatever you do, don't push them. Um, but, uh, but look, uh, there are, uh, there's a lot of, there's going to be an enormous amount of pressure from Democrats and their most active part of their base, uh, yeah. to hold this president accountable and forget about the politics of it. Many of these Democrats do feel that this is in their job description. Their job is to administer mm. oversight, to hold this administration and the executive overall accountable. Uh, so they are very likely to, um, play an important role even as all these investigations go on on the legal side, you can bet the political part of it will come into play as well. Turning the screws. Yeah. Um, so on the Republican side, though, you know, Nixon's allies in Congress stood by him for a long time until that became untenable. Do you think there's a point at which Republicans decide enough is enough or would that have like already happened by now? Yeah, no, I, I think we will find that point, but okay. uh, we're nowhere. We're nowhere near to it yet. I mean, this is a president who has an enormous um, level of support amongst the most conservative, the most active part of the Republican base. Yeah. Uh, and I would look at that support uh, and many of these congressional allies a lot like a dam. There are going to be cracks in that dam. It is going mm -hmm. to be structurally unsound. They're going to stay and try and prop it up as long as possible. Um, but it, you know, it's very likely to, to uh, come crashing down on them. And I think politically, that could come at the very last minute when it's too late. Well, so speaking of the very last minute, should the RNC be worried that this would affect 2020 fundraising, for example? Well, it's no, there, there's no doubt it's going to have an impact. Uh, but I think one of the things that the RNC has done with the support of Trump is really build and mine uh, a, a much broader, uh, deeper, small donor base. So um, mm. Trump supporters that are out there across the country uh, that are sending their 10 or their $25 a month uh, to support right. the RNC and the president, I think they're very likely to continue to support this president to the very end. Yeah. Bigger donors, though, they are much more risk averse as a lot of mm -hmm. these problems continue to mount and the investigations begin to be take center stage uh, or continue to take center stage. Um, they're very likely to open up, you know, the big wallets with big uh, with big donor uh, donations. Hmm. OK, so looking at the president's job approval, he's actually he's hovering right around his average of 40 percent, uh, according to Gallup. As you know, the impeachment of Bill Clinton only helped his approval numbers. Um, could sustained attacks against Trump by Democrats, um, could they actually play in his favor? Yeah, it's a, it's a very big risk. It's a very obvious risk that the Democrats have that essentially they look like they are, um, you know, trying to take political advantage of this president in a way that, um, yeah. you know, you know, 
And one of the problems there is that it could look like a soft coup or that it's trying to overturn the results of the 2016 election. Um, But I think the president's support, what really matters is where that 40 percent is. I mean, Mm -hmm. we look at the national numbers, 40 percent. That's not as bad as if he's if he's hovering around 50 percent in those states that were crucial to his electoral victory. Places Mm -hmm. like Wisconsin, places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, as well as. Other states that are going to be swing states where we have a lot of, uh, we'll have 2020 activity, like North Carolina and Florida. If mm. he can maintain the level of support there, um, he may be able to survive that, uh, that, that keeping that middling numbers of 40% mm. uh, nationally. Interesting. Kevin, thanks. Thanks for coming in on a Saturday to talk to us. Appreciate it. Always great. Great to be with you. Okay, up next. He's the front runner for Democrats right now, but is Joe Biden the party's best bet to topple Trump? I'll ask someone very close to the former VP. Third time's a charm. Former Vice President Joe Biden is seriously considering a 2020 run. All signs point to yes. According to the Associated Press, Biden's advisors have floated the idea of teaming up with a younger running mate like a Beta O'Rourke. And Biden will reportedly meet with his family over the next several weeks to discuss running. He's been making the rounds on the speaking circuit as well, even telling a Montana crowd this month that he is the most qualified person in the country to be president. Now, he could be in a good position, too. According to a new CNN poll, Biden is currently the favorite among Democratic voters by a wide margin as a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. 30 percent say they would support his nomination Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders came in second at 14. Beto O'Rourke made gains at nine. President Trump has already weighed in on what he thinks of that matchup. I dream about Biden. That's a dream. Look, Joe Biden uh, ran three times. He never got more than one percent. And President Obama took him out of the garbage heap and everybody was shocked that he did. Uh, I'd love to have it be Biden. Well, I want to turn now to a man who knows Joe Biden very well, his former 2012 campaign deputy chief of staff, Scott Mulhauser. So is he running? First, thanks for having me. Break some news. (laughs) So I think for him, the best one of the best things about the vice president is that he is pretty similar in private and in public. And when he says he's going to take time with his family and think about it, he really is. is. But that said, I think you look at that recent piece in The Atlantic last week where voters were not only encouraging and asking him to run, they were demanding it. And it was folks from California and across the Rust Belt, and it was Democrats and Republicans. And Mm -hmm. I think you have to hear that and you have to think about it and say it's hard not to at least contemplate. Yeah. Um, So what about this Biden-Beto ticket. I mean, it sounds good. It's catchy. It's alliterative. Spans generations. But uh, two white guys. I mean, uh, if you're a Democrat and you're looking at that and you look back at what happened in 2018, you're saying, are you kidding me? Come on, guys. I think one of the lessons that comes out of the midterms is that voters clearly want authenticity, which Mm -hmm. the vice president and the congressman have in spades. And I think they both get along well. Another thing we learned is that that, the candidates like Beto and like Stacey Abrams and like Andrew Gillum, even when you lose a close race, there's resonance. And so that's how I think they get along well. Do I think it's mighty early for VP speculation? And, you know, without anyone in the race yet and without a nominee, it sure is. Okay. well, uh, whoever runs against the president will have to be prepared for Trump's blistering attacks. Uh, In fact, my colleague Van Jones just asked Kirsten Gillibrand about that earlier in in an interview that's going to run following us. So stick around um, and watch that. Uh, Here's what Gillibrand said about that. And you you fought right back. Is that kind of nastiness, though, 
a deterrent for you to get in no, this race? No, I'm not afraid of him, and I'm not afraid of his nasty language and his name-calling. Um, you know, Biden famously said he'd like to take Trump behind the gym and beat the hell out of him. I think he'd be up for the task, but is that what the country wants to see? Two 70-something guys brawling, swinging fists around? Right. Yeah. Look, I think what voters want right now, particularly Democrats, is a contrast to what they're seeing in Washington. Mm -hmm. And I think that that authenticity we talked about, and there's a resonance to what he's talking about. There's sort of the populist message he's carrying. Yeah. I think you think about what Democratic voters want, and I'm not sure they know. And so what we're going to see is this long, drawn-out, protracted, miserable, but sort of fun, fun. battle. Fun. Sort of fun battle, right, <laughs> over the next several months. Uh, better part of a year. And I think he's going to be a part of that, whether he's a candidate or someone who sort of, you know, stands on behalf of others and jumps in the fray either way. So what about Me Too? A lot has changed since Anita Hill. The Clintons have not been able to navigate Me Too very well. Do you think uh, Biden is prepared for this, you know, new, new world? I think the vice president, if you look at from the work in his Senate career on through his time as vice president and now his foundation, he's was the author of the Violence Against Women Act, and he takes these issues seriously. They're one of the pillars of his foundation work, too. Okay. And I think he's a guy who's been pretty darn progressive his whole life and has stood up for these values and for these moments. And I think we'll see where it goes, but I think he's ready to be a part of that conversation and make sure those issues stay front and center. Um, quickly, can he win a primary? I mean, that would be my concern because, as you say, he's got sort of a populist message yeah. and the party's moving very far left. Can he prove his progressive bona fides when he's up against someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders? I think there is a Sanders wing of the party that will be further left than anyone, and I yeah. think that but, you know, is that where the bulk of the party is? We'll see. I think when you look at his record, while there is populism, there is sticking up for middle-class voters, there's also pretty forward-leaning pieces from LGBTQ, yeah, right? Gay he, marriage, for right. sure, he was, right. He was out there early, and I remember yes, that was, he was certainly controversial. I was there at the time, and it was tough. It was welcomed for a, a lot of us who have defended gay rights. It was, um, that was a nice moment yeah, for him. Yeah, it was, it was pretty special, but he's taken on those fights. He's not been afraid to, and he will again. Scott Mulhauser, uh, great insight. We'll have to have you back, because I have a feeling... He might actually do it. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Next, a judge rules that Obamacare is unconstitutional, but could this actually make life harder for Republicans in Congress? Late last night, a federal judge in Texas dealt a major blow to the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, ruling it's unconstitutional. The ruling could affect millions currently covered under Obamacare and threatens to end protections for those with pre-existing conditions. U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor, a George W. Bush appointee, overturned the health care law. And President Trump considered that a victory and said this while visiting Arlington National Cemetery earlier today. It was a big ruling, a great ruling for our country. We'll be able to get great health care. We'll sit down with the Democrats if the Supreme Court upholds. We'll be uh, sitting down with the Democrats and we will get great health care for our people. That's a repeal and replace handled a little bit differently, but it was a big, big victory by a highly respected judge. So the ruling stems from a lawsuit brought by 20 states and cites a recent change to the federal tax law. The tax overhaul spearheaded by Republicans in Congress last year eliminated an Obamacare penalty that's imposed on Americans who do not have health insurance. According to Judge O'Connor's opinion, that individual mandate is unconstitutional, therefore making the entire Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. In a statement last night, the White House said, 
We expect this ruling will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Pending the appeal process, the law remains in place. So it's 2012 all over again. Now, listen, I'm no fan of Obamacare, the way it was written or the way it was passed, but let's not gloat about the possibility of millions of Americans suddenly finding themselves with no health insurance. So what's happening next? Let me bring in national reporter for The Washington Post, CNN contributor Wesley Lowry. Um, So, Wes, in the near term, what will happen to people who are already um, currently covered under Obamacare? So there's an easy answer to that, and it seems like basically nothing, that things should function the way they would have otherwise um, under the Affordable Care Act because this is unquestionably going to come to an appeal first to the circuit court and then very likely up to the Supreme Court, that right now the Affordable Care Act remains the law of the land and people who uh, have signed up for it, who are receiving health coverage through it, should still be able um, to, nothing should change with the way their health care works, which I think everyone can agree is probably a good thing, right? You don't like to wake up on Saturday. Saturday morning and wonder if you have health insurance or not, no matter what your politics are. Yeah. And so what about uh, the the deadline to uh, sign up um, is affected by this as well or no? Well, no. So so there was a deadline tonight, I want to say, in every state except Massachusetts, which I think has an extended deadline. Um, And that still goes on as as is uh, President or former President Obama actually posted on Facebook maybe just an hour or two ago saying essentially, look, nothing changes in the short term if you are a consumer of the affordable. You can still sign up and you should still sign up. As we know, these exchanges only work if if people go out and sign up for them. Otherwise, the premiums rise for a lot of other folks. And so there is still been a push from both the DNC, from President Obama to... Yeah. to try to get, make sure that people are still signing up and they don't think, oh, wait, yeah. it's all over and, and pull out of the exchanges. Yeah, I mean, that's been a problem inherent in Certainly. the law from the beginning. OK, talk about the political stakes. Um, the president tweeted at Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and soon to be Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to get a new deal done. He tweeted, as I predicted all along, Obamacare has been struck down as an unconstitutional disaster. Now Congress must pass a strong law that provides great health care and protects pre-existing conditions. Mitch and Nancy, get it done. Um, sure, why not? Get it done, right? I mean, it's only one of the most seminal pieces of an Obama administration uh, policies. Um, it's wildly controversial. I'm sure they can just get something done, right? Yeah, it'll be real simple, real easy. You know, they'll get it done by what? Martin Luther King Day, Valentine's Day, and we can go on to something else, right? No, this is going to be remarkably complicated. And in in fact, it's complicated for two different reasons. The first is that the Affordable Care Act is still the law. This is going to get appealed. This could get stretched out for months, if not years, right? And so so now if if you're going to go pass a a different law, you have to deal with how those laws intersect. And then what happens if the Supreme Court eventually decides that, no, overturns this lower judge's ruling, right? And so there's some complication there. The second... Mm thing is that Republicans in 2018 campaigned on the idea that on right. one hand they wanted to protect people with pre-existing conditions but on the other hand they were going to continue this lawsuit right. which could imperil people with pre-existing conditions. And yeah, so, they'll have to figure that uh, out. For, right. Eventually maybe, right? But yeah. And so what you could potentially yep. see would be some type of piece of legislation that could go through the House and the Senate that would explicitly oh, add additional, um, you know, additional protections for pre-existing conditions. Do I think okay. that this is going to be the thing that crafts some type of yeah. massive bipartisan health care agreement? Of, of course not, right? Nancy right. Pelosi is not going to I come in go. and help underdo her own thing, but yeah. we'll see what happens. Thank you, Wes. Forward. It's uh, incredibly complicated. Uh, more to come, I'm sure. Thanks for breaking it down. That's it for us tonight. Coming up, 
Vans got New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and former Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum talking Trump, climate change, women's rights in 2020. Stay put for The Van Jones Show next on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.